This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Good evening and welcome to the Pacific Film Archive. I'm Steve Side and I am the uh, curator for the video program. And uh, it's kind of exciting for me to have uh, this specific tape, Tongues Untied, uh, not only because Marlon Riggs works on campus and it's kind of interesting to intermingle on occasion, but because the work for me is a very uh, powerful experience. The, um, the independent video world uh, has for the most part bifurcated into two areas. One is kind of documentary work that likes to hide behind this kind of uh, glaze of objectivity. And uh, on the other extreme, there are a lot of works that are kind of personalized, subjective attempts at using the media. Uh, in a sense, they're you know, counterposed to objectivity that uh, characterizes broadcast uh, journalism. But what uh, Marlon seems to be doing very successfully is kind of fusing those two forms together so that he can put a very subjective but uh, kind of non-narcissistic uh, first person onto the screen and deal with a cultural landscape that typically is supposed to be dealt with in a very straightforward journalistic mode. So I think that it, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting integration of forms that has a way of uh, tearing apart conventions that uh, have uh, had reign over uh, the media for, for several years. Uh, it's also a, a pleasure that the show is co-sponsored by the Graduate School of Journalism, uh, and I wanted to thank them, and I, I found it interesting that they were, you know, some people consider this a, a risky work, and uh, the school had no uh, hesitation about, you know, juxtaposing themselves with Marlon. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be uh, showing a short work first that Marlon just finished about uh, 24 hours ago called Affirmation. Uh, and then uh, we'll be showing Tongues Untied. Uh, Marlon's going to come up first and uh, you know, briefly introduce the work. And then uh, there will be a question and answer period after you know, the main tape is shown. So here's Marlon Riggs. Um, just briefly, I want to thank uh, the Graduate School of Journalism for being supportive of, of me in this very, at least for me, risk-taking work and something that I can, didn't consider in doing a sort of pure journalistic exercise. And I wondered if I might have a job after I finish this, and I still do, so I'm happy. Thank you. Um, 
And also, I want to thank the uh, Pacific Film Archives for showing the work, uh, especially here in the East Bay. This is the first showing of Tongues Untied, as well as Affirmations, which is the premiere for that work. But the first showing in the East Bay, and in some ways, this is such a home piece of work that it's nice to have it here, where it was made and where it originated. Uh, I'll be here for questions afterwards, so I hope you enjoy. Thank you. As everybody who knows me knows, uh, I've been extremely busy this last two months, particularly since the completion of Tongues and Tide, and this work would not have been done without the, uh, the skill, the craft, the beautiful sensitivity of Christian Badgley, the editor of Affirmations. So I really want to thank her uh, for this piece because she really did bring it together. Christian, please stand up. <laughs> thank you. And with that, tongues untied, and we'll take questions afterwards. Thank you very much. Um, I guess I'll just let you fire off at me. Um, questions, comments, reactions, whatever. Please feel free. Oh, come on. <laughs> yes. I don't like as as opposed to. I mean, I, that, there's been that interpretation that's that people have, and I understand it, but for me it's not an opposition. And it wasn't as if I didn't ever love black men. I think a lot of uh, black gay men who have been rejected uh, face intense hostility as young people, as adolescents, as pre-adolescents, the way I did, you know, as I sort of came into my sexual, sexual being or sexual self and discovered that sexuality, I found that more often than not, the people who were the most kindest, the kindest to me, uh, were those who were white. And I think without thinking about it, especially at age 11, 12, you don't think in those terms, you gravitate toward people who accept you. Um, it wasn't as if I didn't like black men. It was that the people who accepted me and embraced me were white, and the people who rejected me at that time in my life were black. And it was really, in some ways, trying to struggle through that later on as an adult that I rediscovered the love. It wasn't a sort of new discovery, if you will, but rediscovered the love that was there, but hidden and bruised. Yes? No. <laughs> no, I never intended to do that. Um, I'm not trained to do that. Uh, I don't like to do that. I don't like discussing myself. Um, but I found it didn't work. I mean, none of this worked as a cohesive piece without some kind of voice or thread of some kind of story, a person's true story, sort of bringing all of these elements together. 
And I tried as hard as I could to sort of string the poetry together and visualizations and says, oh, it's experimental and people just have to buy it as it is. And it didn't work. And I knew it didn't work. And it was really after sort of going through a hard, long process of thinking about this um, that I realized that I had to I had to say the things that I actually wanted other people to say, which is what I think we as journalists tend to do. Um, we interview people often until we find people to say the things that we've sort of arrived at already in our heads. Um, and I realized I was a person who could say those things. I was a person who had gone through those experiences. And some of the things that I knew would be very painful for somebody else, potentially embarrassing, uh, potentially bringing down some criticism on them, particularly in, in relation to uh, attraction to white men, I knew that I wouldn't find somebody who would make that kind of risk to say those things and not potentially suffer, and that if anybody should do it, it should be me. It wasn't an easy process. It wasn't one, two, three, and here I am. It took months. So, yes. No, I haven't seen him in 15, 16 years, and he wasn't at least... I mean, I don't know if he was gay. We were very intimate and friendly. We never had sex. Um, I suspect he's probably bisexual. He had lots of girlfriends, but, you know. Uh, so, no, he, we didn't have an, a relationship of that kind. It was much more of a sort of intense, personal, intimate friendship. And because both of us were military brats, once our fathers were relocated, we never saw each other again. Yes. I was curious, I was wondering, did you get any funding from the white community and, and basically what was the response? Was it indifference or were, were they trying to help or <coughs> understand? Or? Did I get funding? Well, I got funding from two sources. The ones, I mean, it makes it seem like as much more than what it was there. It was really just two grants totaling a maximum of $8,000, which is not a lot for films of 55-minute length. Um, but Film Arts Foundation, which is a multicultural organization, if you will, in San Francisco, and uh, interestingly enough, the more surprising grant for me was the Western States NEA Regional Fellowship, as we all know, particularly since we have the Maplethorpe exhibit here. Um, NEA is embroiled in some controversy around funding of so-called homoerotic works. So I had applied to them, or actually to the sub-granting agency of NEA after this had happened. I was shocked that I got the grant. And they told me they did this because they wanted to make a statement about what was happening in Washington, D.C., uh, and if this was going to be the last opportunity that they would have to fund a work like that, like this, they wanted to go down blazing, if you will. So, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, I hope that the film has said what I have to say without having to repeat it. Uh, I think partly it's just discovering that there's community there. And I think for many of us, it's sort of dealing with this, this problem, this experience in isolation that's the toughest thing. And it's only much later that you realize that there's a whole community and whole history there that you can find sustenance from, that you can uh, find nurturing support from. 
that I think people find much more comfort and, and find examples of what they might be like in their adult lives. Uh, and there are the, those kinds of places here in the Bay Area. I mean, I don't need to sort of tick off names of organizations in the East Bay or San Francisco, uh, but those kinds of affiliations and organizations exist. Um, and it's also realizing that your life is, you know, is worthy, uh, that it's beautiful, that it, all of the things that make you, you, are in themselves important and vital. Um, and, I mean, that for me is a message that I would offer anybody, one, realizing that you are great unto yourself. It sounds like a new age kind of thing, but, you know. Uh, and also that there is community there. And without the community, I think people struggle um, under great duress. But with community, I think people can surpass and transcend a lot of the, the hostility, the oppression, which we as black gay people face. Yes. Thank you. I I bet he had it already, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the question is: To what extent do I consider the black church to be a negative influence? I guess on gay identity. Um, very. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, the t I want to say, though, that the, the tendency with that is that many people discard the church in toto um, and discard everything associated with spirituality in toto as well because of the hostility and oppression faced by the church, black church in particular, as well as the church in general. And I think the consequence of that is very hurtful, too, and that a lot of gay people in general, not just black gay people, really have no spiritual center. Uh, not necessarily a belief in God, but no sense of a spiritual life or a spiritual transcendence to life. And so they're mired in the everyday problems, they're mired in you know, a sense of no clear identity, no sense of community, no sense of connection with other people. Um, and I think, I mean, what I try to do in my work is to sort of restore that. Uh, through our own sort of traditions and through reinterpreting, in fact, some of the traditions, which I find very invigorating, like the church. I mean, I get moved just, just by the sound of, you know, when I go home back to Texas from time to time to see my grandmother, the sound of the pastor. Now, what he says is totally offensive to me, and yet the cadence and the rhythm, you know, and the heat and the clearings of the throat and so forth, it just gets me. And I realize I use that. I mean, I want to use that in my work. The doo-wop singing, there's been hardly any doo-wop songs to, about black gay love. You know, and I mean, that was, you know, I mean, and, and, and yet doo-wop is part of our heritage, which I wanted to, to claim as ours, too, and to use it for our own purposes and for our own sense of esteem. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think in, that's the way I try to look at it, to try to use those elements which are enriching from our culture and fuse them with our identity and sense of purpose in life. Yes. Um, actually, it's, it's surprising me beyond what I ever imagined. And I mean, I never expected an audience like this, one, for this project. Uh, when, I, when I was doing this and when I was conceiving it, I was looking at it in very small focus. And the audience that I conceived is probably made up of the men right in here, all black, you know, primarily gay. Um, 
And so when the project was finished and premiered at the American Film Institute, I would say a primarily white, probably predominantly heterosexual audience, and there was just this, I can't describe the reaction. It was just this firestorm of enthusiasm just spread nationwide so that I was getting calls from places like the Museum of Modern Art in New York and institutions, public broadcasting stations, which I consider the dogs of the earth in terms of their conservatism. I mean, you know, I, mean I was getting all these, these sort of calls and requests from film festivals. Uh, and since then, it's just, I mean, it's just blossomed. I just returned from Berlin where it had its European premiere there uh, just last week. And there are all kinds of film festivals now that want it worldwide. So, thank you. So, I mean, it's just, it's going far beyond my imagination. How that will translate in terms of money, I have no idea. But, you know, but in terms of people seeing it, you know, which is nice, people are getting a chance to see it. Yes. <laughs> Come join us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's lots of fun. <laughs> Making videos, traveling to Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I mean, did everybody hear that question? Um, the question, if I can sort of synopsize it, is that, I mean, there are, in some ways, people have said it in this way, that you've let a lot of secrets out of the closet. Sort of secrets, not in the sense of being afraid of and, and closeted, but secrets that were precious to us, things that we shared, uh, and now they will become fashionable, so that you will see, for instance, people in Berlin snapping, or trying to snap, you know? <laughs> I mean, you'll see people doing the electric slide, you know, who never, you know, I mean, things was, people sort of mouthing things, black men, brother to brother, brother, and have no idea what they're, and I mean, that's always a risk, I think, with anything where you're exploring something that's very personal and moving to you. I mean, I thought of that in the entire sequence, dealing with my HIV status as well as all of the, the, uh, the faces of the names of the friends and associates who have died. And I realized for a lot of the people who would see this, those things would just be consumed just like any kind of television program, though for me it was extremely meaningful and obviously very personal. And still I felt it was worth the risk, the trade-off to share with people who would be moved in a very meaningful way. And others, you know, that's, that's the risk you take. So I haven't seen too many people trying to do a lot of the stuff. They said they can't vote because they're not coordinated enough, so I'm not worried about that. Um, the snapping, that's okay. People are doing it already, so I don't mind. Yeah. Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, I saw the movie, and I mean, I was, I won't say it was a great movie, but I was riding along with it okay for what it was, and then that scene happened. This is a scene where you see uh, the, the five or six guys in school days who are in a circle and going faggot, faggot, punk, 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 fag, fag, punk, punk, 
you know, and for girls in the yard. And it just, from that point on, my enjoyment of the movie was totally undercut. Um, because in a way it was malicious, but in such a trite, sort of unthinking way, which is the way a lot of isms in our culture tend to operate, that they aren't done with this sort of malicious um, sort of fore, forethought. It's really sort of unthinking, ignorant, sort of hatred, prejudice, bigotry. Um, so, I mean, and it, it made me realize that here was someone who should know better, uh, and that I know people who knew Spike in college who were his roommates who were gay, and he should know better. Um, not to put that kind of message out there in that kind of context so unfeelingly, so thoughtlessly, and that he had to be challenged on that. I mean, he doesn't know who the hell I am, and that's not important, but he just has to be challenged um, so that he can't get away with that, so that people don't sit silently. As The reason he can get away with it is that people do sit silently, that they will laugh, too, in the theaters, even though that they know they're being poked fun at. So I use that scene to sort of remind us remind people like Spike as well as to remind us of our own complicity uh, when we witness those kinds of, of dynamics going on. Yes? Night in the bar? Oh, this was the... Uh, oh, his audiences are <clears throat> mixed. Black, white, gay, straight. I mean, it's. I mean, Eddie Murphy is very popular. I don't know where this was. I mean, this is from the HBO special. There were two shows he had done. One, Eddie Murphy Raw, uh, and the other one was Live with Eddie Murphy or something like that. Uh, but I mean, they were broadcast. One was broadcast. The other, you can get it at your local video rental place. Um, I mean, so they've been out there, and one was. I mean, they were shown theatrically, uh, as well as they were live performances that were you know, that he performed. I think one was in Dallas, but I'm not sure. But it was seen all over and by all kinds of audiences. Yes, sir. Oh, no. Um, uh, the um, Tongues just got, actually, which I am very proud of, Tongues just got an outstanding merit award from Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame which is actually having one of its events tonight. So I'm happy to see you all here. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and it, in Berlin, it received Best Documentary. People don't know what to call this. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the Berlin International Film Festival. Um, so I've gotten Best Performance Art, Best Documentary, New Visions, Experimental. I don't know what to call it myself. You know. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I, I met a black guy actually in Berlin who said, you know, when I was watching this, I was sinking in my seat because it, I was looking at on the, on the screen there and it seemed like you had come and stolen into my house 
ripped through all of my drawers, found my diaries, and read them in public on the stage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he says I was shocked to see somebody sort of telling my secrets so intimately, you know, on a public arena. So, and I realized that was. I mean, that was a hope that it would resonate for so many of us who've never had our stories told. And that other people would start to tell their own stories, too, whether through literature or film or video. But they would be inspired to do their own storytelling. Okay. Yes, Britt. Black gay filmmaker, I guess. That's what I have to get used to now. <laughs> um, I mean, in, in a brief, I've just found virtue in my voice. And that's something that I never trusted before. I always had to hear other people's voices when I would write or hear other people's voices when I considered narration for something. Um, and the thing that I try to push on all my students, which they know by now, is that their voices are important. Uh, and that's something that we tend to have washed out of us, conditioned out of us, just by mainstream culture. I mean, the voices we hear are the kinds of voices you hear on broadcast, you know I mean? And they're, they're not the voices of people, generally. They're, they're trained, dispassionate voices. They're voices of a particular section, region of the country, particular racial background. Um, ethnic background, and they tend to exclude a great diversity of people. So I really come to trust that and to listen to my voice and in turn in listening to my voice, to listen to echoes of voices from the past, my grandmother's voice, my great-grandmother's voice, the voice of Harriet Tubman, whom I've never heard, of course, in person, but still I hear and speaks to me. And I trust those voices in an intrinsic way that I don't think I did before, in a sense that I will allow them to speak too and feel that they have something valid and legitimate to say, and they will stand up to anybody else. Yes. Strange question. Um, I think the white gay community could do a lot to move itself forward <laughs> uh, on a number of issues. I mean, whether they're race or gender or class, um, economics. And I think that would be the greatest benefit. I don't think that whites need to take care of us as much as they need to take care of themselves. Yes. It was there again obliquely, you're right. Um, I wanted to acknowledge that, but if I guess what you should keep in mind is that for me, my, the conversation I was having in doing this piece is with black men, um, primarily. Uh, and we know that. We know that we're portrayed in this highly sexualized, dehumanized fashion. And I don't need to belabor that point. I can show a few graphics and the point is registered. Now, if my primary audience uh, were 
mainstream, then I think I would have placed much more emphasis in explaining that. But because I really did see this, and still do, I mean, it's a conversation, if you will, where others can listen, perhaps partake, but the, the chief dialogue is between myself and other black men. So there's no need to explain a lot of things, not only that one issue, but a number of other things that I thought might sort of get lost in translation for a wider audience, and I just wouldn't, I wouldn't explain it, translate it. I mean, people would have to sort of just hang on the sides and get what they can and, you know, and then come back into it when they could. So, yes. Um, it's tamer, <laughs> uh, but it's a different message. Um, I think, I, well, it's, it's strange. I mean, I look at that, it is very, it's very specific too, in a way, because it, the people that are being spoken to by all the voices are, are speaking about reconnection to the black community. Uh, and in that, there is, a, again, more specific kind of dialogue happening there. Um, I do intend that in some ways for a larger audience, though. Um, and what I wanted to do in that was fairly, in some ways, simple but positive, and that is to affirm the kinds of things that we desire in our lives, as well as our desire, uh, that is, our sexual desire, which is why I wanted to lead off with that sort of somewhat long, but I thought interesting and inter entertaining, uh, first-time story. Um, and then to move into that with a, an affirmation that dealt with protest. Um, and then from that, one that deals with desire on a political and communal level. Um, what I try to do is, in my work is I hope integrate different kinds of, of, I think, consciousness. I think a lot of people, at least it used to be fashionable for people to say that just by virtue of the fact of, fact of one man loving another or one woman loving another, that in itself was a, was a political act that uh, one, didn't need, one didn't have to do anything more in order to, to be political. That was an action, an action of commitment in itself. I don't think so. I think uh, there's lots of people sleeping with other people of various genders and bents and so forth, and that doesn't make it political. I mean, there's lots of people who are extremely um, homophobic, uh, misogynist, racist, uh, who are willing to sleep with anybody. So for me, that, you know, that in itself doesn't explain it. It has to be attending that a consciousness, and that consciousness I wanted to reflect in the march sequence as well as in the voice sequence when you hear people talking about their desire for reconnection uh, to each other as well as to the black community. And as those things integrated, they make for me a strong, positive, affirming black gay identity. Yes. I'm sorry, could you speak a little bit louder? see the response in about two weeks. The Castro is having a week-long run of looking for Langston on a double bill with tongues untied, uh, March 16th through 23rd. So you go, we go, and we'll see. Yeah. 
Um, well, the Lesbian Frameline, which does the Lesbian Gay Film Festival each year, is distributing Tongues Untied. Um, they've been very receptive, if you will. They also see financial interests in this, of course. Um, I'll see. I know that almost every Lesbian Gay Film Festival in the country wants it. Uh, and some want to use it to premiere the festivals this year. And most of those festivals are run by whites, so at least it indicates on their level uh, a support for the work. What's going to be interesting is to see how the Castro clones sort of react, if they will come, one, uh, and how they will react to what's presented there. Because I think for some people, it's a very sort of challenging work. Um, so, probably one more question. Yes. From Louisiana? Okay. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.